Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 190 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, whoa, buckle up, I hang out with Kyle Reutner of Kohana Rum, based on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. Kohana is doing unprecedented and compelling work with heirloom cane varietals to produce rums that help to preserve the centuries-old cultures that brought them to Hawaii and advance the careful scientific progress that will help showcase these flavors for future generations. But before we get too hopped up on fresh cane juice and volcanic terroir, I do have one quick announcement that I'd love to share with you. It's time for the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards, and this year in 2021, the competition has taken on a special tone. Tales has decided that because of the pandemic, it's pretty much impossible to judge the best bars in the world because, well, they haven't been able to stretch their legs and serve customers in a real way for over a year now. This makes sense. However, it does put a lot more emphasis on Spirit's publications, video series, and, hey, podcasts like this one. I'm going to be super honest with you here. I have no interest in trying to win this Spirited Award, especially this year you're going to see industry establishments circling the wagons and protecting their own. But if you look forward to our podcast coming out each week, if you appreciate the fact that we don't hide our stuff behind paywalls or encourage you to give us money through Patreon, and if you'd like us to continue upping the quality of the content we bring you, please consider nominating us for a Spirited Award for Best Broadcast, Podcast, or Online Video Series. Simply by getting on this list, we're going to have access to more and better guests, and that means I'll be able to give more and more valuable content back to you Let me reiterate, the goal here is just to be nominated so that we get more industry eyeballs on our show and more support for the kinds of programming that we'd like to publish. That's good for everybody. So if you'd like to help, please head over to the show notes page for this episode at modernbarcart.com, click the link to the nominations form, and follow the instructions to nominate the Modern Bar Cart Podcast for Best Podcast, Broadcast, or Online Video Series. It would help if You have some of your favorite episodes to link to, so feel free to hit our archives and grab some of your favorites from the past year. And please know that anything you can do to help us make our way into the final round of public voting would be greatly, greatly appreciated. We don't want the fancy inscribed plate, but we do want more people to help us with the good work we're trying to do at no cost to you. If you're not sure where to go to submit a nomination, feel free to email us at podcast at modernbarcart.com and we'll point you in the right direction. We appreciate our growing and dynamic listener base and we want to make sure we're bringing you the best content possible. This is an important stepping stone to that larger mission. Thanks for bearing with us for that little announcement and as a reward, I think we should take a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Blue Hawaii. To make it, you'll need three quarters of an ounce of white rum, three quarters of an ounce of vodka, 
three quarters of an ounce of blue curacao, three ounces of fresh pineapple juice, and one ounce of fresh sour mix. We'll come back to that in a second. Combine all ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake vigorously for about 10 to 15 seconds, then strain into a hurricane glass filled with crushed ice and garnish with a pineapple slice and a brandied cherry skewered on a bamboo cocktail pick. This is a classic tiki drink that actually entered the cocktail canon before Hawaii was officially recognized as a U.S. state. And instead of piecing together a bunch of silly research here, I figured I'd just give you the details straight from one of my favorite sources, imbibe.com. Quote, the Blue Hawaii joined the cocktail canon in 1957, just two years before its namesake island chain attained statehood and four years before the release of an Elvis Presley movie with the same name. It was in Honolulu at Waikiki's shore-hugging Hawaiian Village Hotel that head bartender Harry Yee was credited with first mixing up the Day Glow drink that offered a taste of the tropics. The combination of rum, vodka, pineapple, and sweet and sour mix, rendered oceanic in color by the addition of blue curacao, was so convincing, some even claim to recall Yi holding up each blue Hawaii served to ensure the drink's color mimicked the Pacific just beyond. End quote. For reference, the recipe I listed earlier is from the Pink Squirrel Bar in Chicago, and the house sour mix entails one cup sugar and one cup water combined on the stovetop, like a simple syrup, then allowed to cool, and mixed with one cup of lemon juice and a half cup of lime juice. These days, I'm sure you'll see all sorts of updated Blue Hawaii riffs that advance what the original gave us. There's opportunities to update the rum flavor profile with something local or interesting, and also more natural ways to experiment with the color. But let's get serious. You're never gonna replicate that perfect seaside blue without the help of the slightly unnatural blue curacao. So that's what I'd recommend for the full authentic effect. However, if anyone listening out there has ideas on a natural blue color that won't change its hue in the presence of acid, like butterfly pea flower syrup does, please do hit us up by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com. So now that you've nominated our podcast for a spirited award and settled in with a classic Hawaiian tiki cocktail, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this eye-opening conversation and rum tasting with Kohana Rum General Manager Kyle Reutner, some of the topics we discuss include how Kohana Rum started as a passion project dedicated to Hawaiian heirloom cane varietals, spreading from a small lot to several hundred acres of cane farmed at several locations on Oahu. What heirloom cane even means, from its pivotal role in the Polynesian diaspora to the advent of commodity sugar farming to recent efforts to resurrect a nearly lost cultural staple crop. Then we get into the tasting. Boy, do we taste. We sample four white, i.e. unaged, agricole-style rums from Kohana, all with different flavor qualities and origin stories. Along the way, we talk about Hawaiian terroir, the primacy of plants in the species naming agenda of native Polynesians, how Kohana has diversified its offerings using the only cacao grown in the United States, and much, much more. Kyle is a tremendous advocate, not only for his brand, but also for the community that Kohana is a part of. That is, the rum community, the heirloom cane restoration movement, distillers who want to lay a careful, scrupulous groundwork for future generations to build upon, and most importantly, people who care about delicious rum and where it comes from. With that, 
I'm pleased to present this wide-ranging conversation with Kyle Reutner of Kohana Rum. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we jump into this fabulous tasting of Hawaiian agricole rums, why don't you just uh, give us a quick introduction so our listeners know who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Kyle Reutner. I am the general manager of Kohana Distillers. So my day-to-day job is managing a farm production team, sales team, tasting room, and uh, trying to make that all flow together. So I, I oversee the whole operation. Yeah. Uh, how did you how did you come to be associated with this brand? So I am a recovering chemist. My degree is in chemistry. Uh, and like most graduate students, uh, I pursued hospitality. So I got into the bar world while I was in grad school for chemistry and really fell in love with it. So I come from a hospitality background. So chemistry as a career wasn't something that I actually pursued. I refer to myself as a recovering chemist. Um, and then I got into the bar world was opening and running bars and restaurants and had done a enough hard work that um, the founders here decided to seek me out and ask my counsel. And then I've kind of worked my way up. Awesome. Awesome. So, so you're the operations guy, which means you have your hands in pretty much everything. Uh, and, and I, I want to get into all that that entails and all that your rum entails, because it's particularly exciting. But first I want to, I want to give you a little story here about how I first encountered Kohana rum. And this was maybe about three or four months ago. And I, I got a, I got a text from one of my distiller friends who does not happen to live in the district of Columbia. And then uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with um, liquor laws and, and the laws surrounding shipping alcohol in the United States, DC is generally referred to as the wild West. You can do pretty much anything you want here except for open container. Um, and so with a couple of states surrounding us that are a little bit more limited than we are in their ability to ship and or receive alcohol, I was contacted by a friend who was interested in your Hawaiian agricole rum. And uh, this person said to me like, hey, can can I ship some stuff to you? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, not a big deal. Happy to happy to receive it as long as I can taste it. Right. And so fast forward to me receiving the shipment. Uh, then a couple of days later, I find myself in a strip mall parking lot with a bunch of little plastic tasting cups and we're in front of like a dentist office and a nail salon. And we're sitting there kind of like down in our seats, like with these little cups, like down below the window level and just kind of like trying to, trying to casually taste through little, little, little samples of each of the bottles you sent. So, so it's, it begins for me in a strip mall parking lot. Uh, after a delicious uh, Thai food lunch, so it was it was a good it was a good little uh, good little digestif. Um, we weren't driving on empty stomachs, uh, so that's how I encountered the rum. And and what stuck out to me immediately is obviously you're doing something that a lot of rum producers are not. So I figured I would let you segue us into the overall project uh, that we're going to be talking about today, and then maybe we can start digging into details from there if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that uh, a strip mall parking lot is a fantastic place to in a canner Hawaiian agricole rum. That is uh, hilarious because usually, you know, we get the like, 
wonderful job of like having people visit the island, come through our tasting room. It's all manicured for everybody. And you're just out there in like Dixie cups, like, let's go. I, I'm, I'm with mm-hmm. that. So I, I like the, you know, hopefully our spirit was transportive enough that you, you felt a little aloha in the class. Um, mm-hmm. for, for what we do as a business uh, overall, we, we really have, I, I always say we have three things that make us vastly different from almost everybody else in the world. There's a small percentage of the world's rums that are made using fresh sugarcane juice, whether you are talking about cachaça, um, Martinique, uh, AOC, Agricole rums with an H. Um, you know, in Japan, there's some made. In Hawaii, we have ourselves, and there's a couple upstarts that are getting into it. But fresh sugarcane juice is the base for everything we do. So there's something like 3 or 4% of the world's rum. So we're already in a minority there. And the second thing that makes us different is we grow everything ourselves. So that puts us in a, a category completely alone. There is, there is nobody that only grows their own sugarcane and does that. Like it just isn't, that's not normal. And there, there may be a, a handful of people. I say nobody, but it's such a small amount that it, it's hard to, frankly, especially knowing what I know about doing it, I know why people don't. Um, it's, it's a lot of work to be vertically integrated. And the, the last of the, the sort of trio of things that make us different is we only grow heirloom Hawaiian sugarcane. And we'll dive, I, hopefully, pretty deeply into this, but Hawaiians had cane on our islands 500 years before the Caribbean had sugarcane, about 800 years before contact with the West. So we have all these heirloom plants that do not lend themselves to sugar production and therefore molasses. They don't, they don't have any history in the traditional colonial sugar lifestyle, except in the fact that when Hawaii was colonized, they all got pushed to the side. So that's their only sort of interaction with it. So it's a really unique space to grow with 34 varietals of sugarcane in our collection that are genetically unique and known to be Hawaiian. And of those, I think there's 91 different names. So really unique uh, to look at what it is we do. So fresh juice, we grow it all ourselves. It's all estate grown and it's heirloom Hawaiian varietal. So like, yeah, that's us in a nutshell. That's insane. Uh, There's so much to dig into there. I have a bunch of questions that I already want to just assail you with. Um, But before I start asking questions about like the Polynesian expansion and all all of the all the history and culture that are tied up in in what you do, um, I I, could you just give us uh, a quick synopsis of like how the company was founded and and like like uh, how old you are just for, so that we can get a sense of you as a craft or you know kind of growing craft operation within the US landscape of craft distillers. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we we are entrepreneurial and as bootstrap as it gets. We started off the two founders, Jason Brand and Robert Dawson, basically searching for co, which is the Hawaiian word for sugarcane. So it all started as a farm. We did not start, we knew, we knew distillation was in the not too dis- distant future, but this was 2009. So you have one sugar mill operating on the island of Maui and that's it. So sugar is basically dead and the writing is on the wall that sugarcane won't be being grown in Hawaii a decade later. 
And that was part of the hypothesis was if we're going to do this project, we have to be able to supply it ourselves. We can't count on the molasses from some other thing. We can't count on sourcing co from anybody else or sugarcane if it was a hybrid. So Robert and Jason really went down the path of holy cow, how do we find all of these, find the right sugarcane to grow? And so in the beginning, the idea was let's go ask around. So there's the Hawaii Agricultural Research Center, uh, known as HARC. They used to be the Hawaii Sugar Planters Association. So they, at one point in world history, they were the foremost authority on sugar. So all kind of experimental cane being grown. They were working on, you know, all, all driven by white granulated table sugar. So you're talking tonnage and energy output and waste and, and like stay out of our way. We're making a commodity, but they have so much information and so much intelligence. So Robert ends up talking with them and they go, you know, you should really chat with Noah Lincoln, who is now Dr. Noah Lincoln, who is researching Co. He is a Hawaiian gentleman, grew up, I think, on Maui. Now he's on the island of Hawaii, but he was pursuing his PhD at Stanford at the time. And his PhD research in ethnobotany was on heirloom Hawaiian cane. So Robert and Jason find Noah. They start scouring the islands, begging for cuttings from people's backyards, donating to botanical gardens to take cuttings, getting them all tested by Noah, letting him really research the lineage. And while he was doing his PhD research and eventually writing the book on Co, which we can include uh, probably in the show notes of this, if anybody wants to buy uh, Noah's amazing book on Hawaiian cultivars of sugarcane, that's really where we leaned. We leaned on Noah Lincoln, Dr. Radovich at University of Hawaii at Manoa, and just found everything we could. Started as a quarter acre of sugarcane, so like tiny, tiny, tiny farm, like gentleman's farm kind of size. Like most people could grow that in, you know, maybe a big backyard in California. But we're, we grow from a quarter acre to one acre to 10. And by the end of this year, we'll have about 310 acres of Hawaiian sugarcane being grown on the island of Oahu. So granted, it's taken us, it'll take us 13 years to get to that, but that's been the biggest part of it. If you're going to control the whole beast, you've got, you've got to get the seed to do that. So it's been really cool to watch it grow pun intended, but yeah, it's uh that's how we got started, and that's who we are. We started making rum in 2014, so that's five years of farming before we ever made rum, and we're still so. I mean, look in the global scheme of things, I think we make in a like a, a year what large companies make in like a day or a week. I mean, we're we're tiny in the in scope, but we do it all our way. That's phenomenal. I, I think I have at least one buyer for that for that book. Might happen to be the guy who I, I met in a, a strip mall parking lot. But uh, yeah, all right. So great to hear that that founding story, and and I love the the ethnobotany side of things because that does tie into uh, exactly the distinction that I want to draw out here. Right. So you begin this interview by giving us this three way elimination 
route to explaining why you're so special, right? The first one is agriculture. You're using fresh cane juice. This is labor intensive. Uh, it doesn't stay fresh cane juice for long, right? Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it's yeah. not fresh anymore. So there's 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 a, a clock going on on the ability to use this in your uh, fermentation, and then. Finally, you're farming it, right? And and there is, you know, although vertical integration is a sexy word, it's something that I certainly aspire to uh, as somebody with a business. Uh, it's obviously very difficult to accomplish, especially as you continue to scale. Um, you know, you mentioned that there's probably not a lot of people doing this. I mean, maybe there's some folks who are doing this in, in Haiti, kind of in the Claren world, but again, that's super yeah. small scale. Uh, there's some more boutique places now that are starting to do it. I believe I, I did an interview with Kopali Rum and, and they're oh, awesome. starting to, to, to do some, some integrative yeah. uh, aspects to their process. But again, these are either very small and not designed to scale operations or sort of boutique operations where you get public buy-in and it's a luxury process to begin with. You're talking about a very agricultural process and one that is completely unique in that you're using this heirloom cane. Now, I, for people listening, this is going to sound absurd, but I think the best resource for you to learn about heirloom is actually to go back to our Breaking Bloody episode, our very first interview, The Tomato Man Cometh with uh, Craig LaHoulier, who talked about uh, heirloom tomatoes, the Seed Savers Exchange, how those plants were yeah. resurrected in the United States. Now, heirloom, you know, this is, you know, this is stuff that as far as I understand it, when the first Polynesians began to expand, they loaded cane onto the boats. Is, is that even relatively accurate? No, it's, it's, it's accurate in, in every way. It, I can expound upon it a little bit and say, when you are going somewhere new, so let's say you're putting your family and friends on canoes and you're traveling across Polynesia. So the, the very first wayfinders as they got here were traveling via the stars, Papua New Guinea, throughout all of Polynesia, Oceania. Like you can look at it in a, in a lot of ways, right? We don't want to leave Micronesia out or, or anywhere. Like they're traveling the seas and they're, and they're finding different places. And, and there, there is a very specific direction they took. And Hawaii is thought to be the last place they reached, although there's an argument for them actually reaching the west coast of the United States, but that's that's for somebody else. They, they reach Hawaii after, say, Tahiti, Fiji, and they bring with them what they need. So we talk about ko all the time, but there are 26 plants and animals, most famously kalo or taro, what poi is made from. So this starchy root, root vegetable, they had to bring it. They brought pigs, they brought dogs, they brought ulu, which is breadfruit. There, there's all of the things they needed to survive because pre-Hawaiians arriving here, before they were even called Hawaiians, there's only things brought via what we call the three W's, wind, water, or wings. So you have a lot of flora here, but not a lot of providing fruits and you know vegetables and things like that. Like there's birds, that's it really. Like this is, this is the most remote place in the world. So really, intelligent people brought with them what they needed and co was one of those things and there's there's a lot of reasons you can talk about it it's they used cane in religious ceremony it's medicinal but when you get down to brass tacks sugar cane when grown right is the most calorically dense crop in the world per pound you have more energy available to you so if you need to freaking survive 
you can chomp on sugarcane and you have access to direct sugar, simple sugars, and you've got water in there as well. So it's like, there's a lot of reasons to have co coming, but like one of them is obviously for survival. So it's like, when you think about it, yes, the first Polynesians got here, the longest answer to a question ever, but yes. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, that's, and, and I imagine what, what then happened was, you know, from these initial, you know, handful of plants that came to the island, then terroir and culture took over. And what we have is on different islands and different parts of different islands. We have leeward, we have windward, we have wet, we have less wet. And, and these are the evolutionary forces that drive these into separate what we might call varietals or cultivars of these, the, the original plants that came. So what we have, if I can fast forward us to the point when uh, I guess the colonial forces come and do terrible things to the natives, take over the islands, plant a bunch of pineapples, et cetera, is what we have is an existing uh, sort of, I guess, ecosystem that has all these different cane varietals. And at the point when you and the rest of the team were getting ready to get involved, they were very much at risk of sort of disappearing due to lack of interest and due to the previous interest being almost exclusively commodity. Is that accurate? It's it's really close to accurate. I, I We can't say that no one else cared because there were a number of scientists that cared very deeply, but they were in charge of single plots and and really, you know, like, farming very, you know, single, maybe single plant at a time. So yes and no, like there were people that cared about it, but it was such a small amount of people trying to protect these plants or trying to protect their history. So if you think about Hawaiians, a lot of their life, and I'm, I'm, I'm a white guy, I'm a Hali guy. So look, I can't speak for a people. I can't speak for an entire, but you're growing some of these plants with all of the same reasons that every bit of your ancestors did and for commodity sugar to come in and have pushed them all to the side and made them quote unquote you know un unneeded unnecessary well that's just silly these plants are meant to be here they are as much a part of the islands as the people are now mm. they didn't maybe care about either of those two things during colonial times but that's that's probably a whole different podcast for for somebody else but we we definitely ran across all of the people who cared <laughs> really quickly so it was a small number um unfortunately but now we're able to grow actual hawaiian plants in a capacity that like can't can't really be compared i mean nobody grew, has grown this much co since there were kings and queens here so that's it's pretty awesome yeah, yeah. And and so what I love is is that the galvanizing force for this uh restorative and conservation-minded effort um seems to be rum, which is something that I'm very interested in. Uh, obviously <laughs> a fantastic way to uh to get a little bit of excitement behind the project of um sure. you know reviving some of these cane varietals. So um what we do have here is is we have a tasting. Uh, what I did is I arranged my tasting in uh, the order of the dates that were on the bottles, but I do have a bit of a notation system here on painter's tape on my on my glasses. So if you want to take me through 
any of this. I don't know where you want to start, but I, I think right now we've talked about it. We should probably taste one and then maybe get on to more questions. No, I think that's great. So I, I gave the trio of things that make us different. I'm going to make it even harder and give the fourth, which is just like a winemaker only uses one grape to make certain wines, whether it be a Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Grigio. Not all grapes taste the same. People all understand that. Sugarcane has been treated like a commodity since rum was really birthed. So people don't look at the plants and we, we look at them a lot. I talk about the four P's are plants, place, production, and people. Um, and we care so much about the plants. So I define all, all beverage through those sort of four P's. But we do single varietal rums. So in addition to fresh sugarcane juice, Hawaiian varietals, we grow it all ourselves inside of the bottle, you'll look at the side of it, it'll say when it was harvested and what cane type is inside. So if, if you don't mind, Eric, I'd actually like to start you with the first Hawaiian cane we ever found um, and go from there. So that is Manulele. Uh, for those following at home, it's spelled M-A-N-U-L-E-L-E. -L -E. And the, the iteration that we're trying today was harvested in July of 2019. You'll notice there is not a ton of uh, harvested in 2020. Um, we're gonna forget that year. We made a lot of sanitizer uh, and, and continued growing our farms, but in July of 2019. So let's dig in, shall we? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that's compelling right on the nose is that I get some sort of bready, but moving into gingerbready notes. Um, it's, you know, I have I have a bunch of these sort of right in front of my face, and you get this unmistakable just cane character just sort of emanating. So we do have the uh, sort of uh, tetrapartite ghost of of cane uh, coming up right in front yeah. of the mic here. But but yeah, I would say this is um it's it's gentle, almost wintry um, on the nose, and and uh, yeah, yeah I, I think I I'll st I stand by gingerbread. No, I think that I think there's definitely like a, a bready thing going on probably from, you know, the interaction with the yeast and, and what comes from it, but it's, it's still, Manulele is this really interesting cane because it's purple and yellow striped. So, so I kind of see our plants just like you maybe would look at wines and you'd say like the purple canes taste earthier than the green canes taste. So like if it's a green or yellow cane, it's going to be brighter and more tropical. If it's a purple cane, it's going to tend to have a, a lot more earthiness and, and that bready gingery thing that you get. Um, I, I also get like, this is one of my favorite canes. I get a, I get salinity. Um, I get something that's like almost like preserved um, mm. salinic going on. As soon as you said yellow, I took another sniff and, and this has definitely got like some banana bread, banana nut bread vibes to it as mm -hmm. well. No, for sure. Yeah. And, and not a ton of, yeah, there's, it's more savory. There, there's not a ton of tropical top notes. Whereas in a lot of other rums that we make there, it, it's like banana and lychee flying out of the glass. This tends to be more subdued. You get a lot mm -hmm. of the like herbaceous, what I would call like day old mint at the very end. Um, oh yeah. Playing, yeah. Playing with like, yeah. And, and like, all, when we distill, it's really fun because it's like our, our distillation day, as, as we look at it, we'll, we'll make our heads cut and get into hearts. And then it, 
it's really unique because it goes like flowers, fruits, candies, and herbs over the course of the like, you know, seven hours that it's, the still is on. And you're like, once you, once you've experienced that, it's really hard to not, that's how I judge our rums. I'm like, okay, well, where are my flower notes? Okay. This one's, this one's way lower. It's way, it's grass, but it's not like plumeria. There's none of the, like that, but the herbs and candies, the mm. like anisette and like mint, it's, it's huge in there. You know, this, if, if I were to compare this to a, an unaged grain distillate, I would say that this is somewhere between like a very minty rye and a chocolate malt barley type situation. Yeah. Uh, it's got some of those similar things, but it's unmistakably cane. I mean, like there's, there's no way that you're getting away from that cane. And it, it's certainly a, a unique first varietal to have encountered because, uh, at least for most consumers, this sort of runs counter toward like the flavor profile that you're expecting from a rum, especially an unaged rum. Yeah, no, for sure. This is, I mean, the probably the largest part of our, our business as far as sales is education. It's, it's teaching people that like the word rum, as you know, it maybe doesn't apply in the same way, which is, which is awesome. But you see that we're not doing this work alone, right? Like you're seeing American craft distillers doing, it in whiskeys you see them doing it in agave spirits and then you see like you know our rum fam whether it be you know like molasses based or fresh cane juice based they're getting to flavors that are not all just copies of what caribbean rums have been which is cool so you, you're like we love martinique aoc pro like agricole, you know, protected by France stuff. I, I adore so many of those producers. We're not trying to mimic all of that. We don't use a Creole column still. We use a hybrid pot still. So when you taste this, even at 80 proof, like hopefully Eric, you get like a full bodied spirit. The texture on these is, is legit. We catch, we catch so much flack for 80 proof rum. People are like, well, why aren't you doing, you know, higher, higher iterations? And we will. But at 80, this, this thing still booms and it's awesome. So, yeah. yeah and it's still, I, I'll tell, I'll tell you this much. It's more warming in the throat and upper chest than I would expect an 80 proof spirit to be. So you've got that great luscious mouthfeel, which is why one of the reasons why I went immediately to dessert. Right. And, and, and then you also have like a really nice yeah. heat profile. And, and this is something that, I don't think a lot of people take into account when they're analyzing or judging a rum is the heat profile because first of all, most people don't have a flight of, you know, five or six different rums in front of them on a, on a you know regular basis like I do. And, and, and so I think it's overlooked, but I really do look for that heat profile, look for how the heat progresses. And I think that heat and texture are, they should are and should be very closely related to one another because once you're done sensing the texture, then logically the next thing that you're going to get is the heat. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, especially with the proof note. And, um, you know, just to be honest, it just leaves you more to experiment with is, you know, sure. when, when you decide to go up in proof, then you have, you have more stuff to look at Then you can, you know, you can compare that across varietals. That's just more to experiment with. So I don't see it as a limitation. I see it as just something to pull out on a rainy day when the still's not, not going. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I think there's, look, if, if we could chase down every, uh, everything that I want to, um, which is why this is going to be, you know, a lifetime of making Kohana because look, there, the amount of iterations you have with yeast, we, I mean, we're, we're talking all white rums today, so I'm not even going to talk about the barrel opportunities but proofs, different yeasts, like how you're distilling these things, like it, this is a, this is a lifestyle and a lifetime worth of work. I mean, it's a, there's a lot to chase down. And as we've seen, even year to year, bricks may change a little bit, but whatever else is going on when we're harvesting, you know, we've got four different fields. So if I'm, you know, near the North shore during the winter, when the waves are booming, of course, there's going to be more salinity in our cane they're covered in freaking salt water. So like, it's, it's really unique to see that. So we've got terroir, we've got proof, we've got yeast, we've got farm. So there's, yeah, I, I, the work is set out. Um, and then add 34 different canes. Um, sure, there's a sure. lot of work to be done. Um, so the next, the next thing I kind of want to get onto here and, and we'll definitely taste another rum while we talk about this, but, um, you know, I, I when, when I got excited and told my wife about uh, this interview, uh, I was like, Oh, we're going to taste single cane rums. And she goes, cool. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And and not that, not that she's an, an uninformed person. She has to deal with me. So she, it soaks in whether she's listening or not. But, um, but I, I was like, all right, let me put it this way. Imagine you walked into a wine store or the wine section of a liquor store and your three options were red wine, white wine, and rosé. And maybe yep. there were some bubbles available. That would be like the rum world up until now. And imagine if you walked into a, a liquor store one day and you were used to a lifetime of those three or four things being your options. And suddenly someone's like, have you tried a Pinot Noir? You'd be like, what? Yeah. And, and so that's the metaphor I used. And, and I, I guess I, I'd love to hear you. Maybe maybe you can introduce another one of the rums and then maybe talk about the relation, maybe how the single cane varietals are both similar to like the way we think about grape varietals and maybe some of the ways that they're different, because I imagine there's got to be some ways that it's different. Oh, for sure. So let's let's jump into Pacavelli next. So I think that would have been the April harvest. Um 2020. Got it. Um, so Manu Lele has a really amazing story. It means flying bird. It was used in this really cool religious ceremony. Pacavelli does not have any crazy awesome stories. It is, it's, it's just a part of, it's a part of the pantheon. So it's kind of the, these are, I won't say bookends, but like you have this really interesting, you could write six pages on Manu Lele and then Pacavelli's like, Pacavelli's awesome. It's striped. <laughs> but very different in flavor profile. So, oh yeah. Hope. So this one, for for me, this one is. Uh, it takes savory to a whole different level. Um, yeah, on, it's on very saline on the nose for me. Yeah. So oh, wow. Yeah. Night and day from the first, right? Yeah, that's getting into some of those traditional agricole, like olivey notes, a little bit. Yep. Yeah. So this is the one when somebody's like, I love La Favorite and they're like, they want, they want that olive and like just a touch of ketone like that. Like there, there's not a ton of rubber in the Pacavelli, but there's, it's just a hint. 
And I'm like, hey, this is the one for you then. Like if we're doing a, an apples to apples thing, that's that's there. For, for the way you're sort of analyzing like red wine, white wine, you know, rosé, champagne and, and looking at it, I, I think the rum world has for a long time had really interesting processes going on, but they weren't talking about that portion of it, right? The secret was how good the molasses you were sourcing was, is. Those, those are things that you didn't talk about on the front of your bottle because like it's what you did that helps to make your stuff better, but it wasn't the show. And going back to the four Ps, whether the plant or the produce that you start with, whether it's molasses or cane juice, if your focus isn't on that, you're gonna sell the part that your focus is on, whether that's distillation, so that's production, or whether it's the place, like let's say I'm in Jamaica, I'm selling Jamaican rum, right, or Barbadian rum. So for us, when you, when you look at it, I'm always returning to the plant. We have some really amazing production methods, but like it's not what we talk about. That's not what we're trying to share. Kohana, the work of the sugarcane, we just stay the hell out of the way. Let's let the sugarcane be what it is. So when you taste Pacavelli, you're tasting what we could do keeping everything as in line as we can. I mean, look, it's all natural stuff. So there's only so much control, right? I can't control what yeast comes in on the sugarcane, but I can control what inoculated yeast we use and whether or not we do open or closed top fermentation, which we do closed because we want the cane to be the show, not wild yeast, not all the other things. This is about co. So hmm. all of our choices as it relates to everything Pacavelli, Manulele, Pili Mai, whatever varietal we're doing goes back to how do we represent what this cane is trying to do through the rum. And Pacavelli is like, it's savory. It's got this like, so it's got olive, but it's also, there's this salted beef in Hawaii, uh, pipicaula. Um, it's got like a pipicaula note, especially at the end. So it's like, no, nobody wants to drink a rum that's like meaty. But like it, it's in there. It's it's got like this meaty thing happening. I I was gonna say I would totally drink this in a martini. Like, yeah. Uh, my co-founder Ethan and I have been kind of joking around, be like, yeah, yeah, this year is the year of the rum martini, which which <laughs> just across the board sounds kind of vile. But uh, but with this, I, I it's it it actually has a little bit of bitterness. Um, like not a yep. not um not like a gentian or a quinine bitterness, but almost like a botanical or um, like a, a the bitterness that you might get from using whole spices in, in some cooking applications. So um, I like it. And it, it, it's, it's drier than the Manulele. And to me, it's it's not as warming. It's it's not like I, I feel like I, I've got this robust whole chest warmth. It's, mm -hmm. it's more of a I don't know. It's pointing me toward toward like a almost like a gin or or a vodka um, mouthfeel to it. And um, you know what I what I find interesting about what you were just saying about the closed top fermentation is whenever I come across something that is ostensibly agricultural and that has a harvest date on the label or some sort of date pertaining to the batch number and the distillation, I often find myself in the agave world. Right. And, and one yeah. of the things that we love to celebrate about, about like these um, 
you know, these very authentic mezcals is the fact that like, oh, well, we, we did this fermentation in the spring and here's what was blossoming. And we had our open top cow's hide fermenter and you can taste some of, you know, what was flowering at that very moment. And there's something beautiful and compelling about that. But, you know, it seems like with all of the different things you have going on with all these varietals, you almost need to set a limiting factor for yourself and not a limiting factor, but a focusing factor. And it seems like that closed top fermentation and that true focus on the varietal, on the plant really gives you that constant. So like, all right, here's what we're focusing on. Go. Um, yep. So I, nope. I really like that. It is, you know, it, people either really dig it or they're like, you know, you should already be at the point. But remember, these mezcal producers have decades, if not generations of understanding. I, I don't doubt that if my kids were to take over this distillery, they might start doing a process like that. But we're at the beginning and you can't fake learning about it. So like the idea of blending all of these together and having the hubris of a, like, this is right. It's just crazy to me. So instead, like, you know, the chemist inside of me and really the dogma from the get go, I mean, of our, our two founders, like, no, we do not blend cane. We, we are learning still. We are, we are sharing these things with so many folks. We need to limit the stuff. Otherwise it just goes down this far. There's nothing wrong with somebody not doing that. It's just not our path. Our path is let's understand them all. And yeah, sure, maybe in 10 years, five years, whatever, I'll be like, well, you know, I really want to do a blend of these three for this very specific application. And I think it'll be delicious and we'll test that out. Or maybe I want to open up, you know, fermentation during the spring for this varietal and see what we can do. But those are iterations for post understanding. And you can't, you just can't fake the knowledge base. Nobody has done this. So we have to go about it in this stepwise fashion. Otherwise, how do we know what we're getting to is the best thing? We would just, it would all be arrogance. Um, and I, I just, we don't buy into that. This is, this is experimental and dope. And we, we want people to embrace the fact that every spirit on a Whole Foods, Albertsons, King Supers, you know, what, Publix, Costco, I don't care where on those, they came from the ground at some point. We're just embracing that. So yeah, I mean, soapboxy as, as can be, I suppose, but it's, we have to go through these iterations. Otherwise we're goofing up. I don't have cognac history or even, you know, the hundred years of Martinique history of learning it where we are starting and we'll embrace that where we make awesome, delicious things, but we're at the beginning of a really long journey. This episode is brought to you by near country provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is 
the real deal. And I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was just thinking about was cognac of like, huh, what's what's the opposite of this? Like, oh, those cognac people who can just go down into their little paradis and grab something that's like 150 years old and taste yeah. it and 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 have an understanding through their palate that goes back over a century. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's just yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's apples and oranges. And I'm I'm glad that you again, I, I love the focus. It, it certainly it, to me it's a a bonus, not a detractor in any way, uh, especially considering how many canes you're working with here. Um, and, and what I'd love to move on to now is, you know, we've already talked a little bit about terroir. We talked about, you know, waves on the North shore booming over, giving us some salty cane. Um, maybe when, while we're tasting through our next one, you can talk me through, um, some of the other aspects of terroir, because, uh, you mentioned you do have multiple farms and, uh, I imagine that with the Hawaiian climate, there's some interesting, both challenges and opportunities that us mainland folks don't necessarily understand or won't, wouldn't necessarily think of right off the bat. No, for sure. So we're, we're going to jump into Pili Mai next. Um, so Pili Mai means come hither or uh, come to me. There's a phenomenal song called A Pili Mai. For those of you who want to hop on YouTube afterwards, it's a beautiful Hawaiian song. Um, it is unmistakable. Once you've heard it, you will hear it more often than you think. Um, but Pili Mai is, is what we refer to as the lust cane. It's the cane that like was used for the short-term infatuation uh, amongst Hawaiians, and it would sort of like bring someone to you. Uh, Pili Mai plays that way as a rum too. It's kind of this like, it's this playful, like joyous, joyous rum. So, uh, I try not to use, uh, you know, bad adjectives, but it's a, it's a sexy rum. It's a, it's something that I can imagine two people coming together over. Yeah, it is. Um, it's very perfumed on the palate. And usually, usually when I describe a spirit as being perfumed, it's, you know, usually on the nose and, and mm -hmm. this has, this has, you know, certainly a cane nose. I almost get some like I get some like melon on the on the back of the nose, and it's I mean, that that is inherently like just a, a very gentle and and welcoming aroma. Um, yeah. And and then you dive into it, and you get the this perfume. I get sort of like white and pink flowers, uh, you know, things that you would associate with uh, you know with with the act of of coming together with someone, whether in friendship or or in uh, in romance. Yeah, um, and and Pili Mai, you know. Fantastic, beautiful cane as well. Um, so, so to answer the question while we're sipping on Pili Mai, we have, we have four different major farms. Um, two are in central Oahu in between, right against the Waianae mountain range. And we're in between the Waianae and the Ko'olau. So if you visited the island of Oahu, it looks a little bit like a diamond. We're in the middle of it. And there's two different mountain ranges that are on either side of the island. We're in the breadbasket in between, which is famous for agriculture of all sorts from the beginning, from Hawaiian arrival to 10 years ago. It's it and, and, and right now it is it is the agricultural breadbasket. So unique soil, but also soil that in some ways got treated really poorly for a little bit. So there is some like land maintenance and making sure we're being really smart about how we take care of 
what other larger companies maybe wouldn't care too much about. So all volcanic soil. Um, and then we have two North Shore farms, one in Waialua and one in Haleiwa. The terroir difference for, for, from what we can tell, the easiest one to tell is proximity to saltwater. That's the, that's the simplest one from just a flavor uh, moment, right? But you do get slightly different soil composition. So we're only at about an 800 feet elevation in our central Oahu farms. And we're at, you know, bit close to zero everywhere else. There's a tiny bit of soil differentiation there. Um, not necessarily in our nutrient densities, but in some of what else is found. So it, it, it's a unique thing. It, nutrient density, there is some change, but not enough that my palate pulls it. It's usually based on other things. Our farm right next to the distillery is surrounded by some tree farmers. So doing fruits and things like that. So we tend to get some notes that play into that side of things. So surrounding farms. Um, and then as important as where it is, is when you're harvesting. Um, and that's twofold. It's how healthy the cane is, what, whatever else is going on, but also like how much water has it been getting and how are the stills working when it's 75 versus 85? So, so there's, there's more than just the actual cane terroir. There's the, the how everything else in the environment plays. But yeah, the, the different fields give us different things. I tend to like the fruity notes that we pull from our local farm in very specific canes. So we're, we're learning that, right? Like I don't want to force Manulele to have those fruitier notes that happen to come because they're grown right here. I want to embrace the things that kind of play along with it. So Manulele at our more Southern farm tends to be, in my opinion, that's the, that's the farm I want to be growing it on. Um, not that it's not cool in the different ones, it's just different. Uh, so all of them have this. And, and like I said, we just have this iterative, uh, unfortunate, infinite uh, situation, but it also makes it really cool. So yeah, think think salinity, think time of year, but then also think neighboring farms, um, mm. and that's that's a big part of it. So at the two North Shore farms, we have very little issue as far as like flowering crops. Um, there's some corn and some things like that. We don't, I don't pull a ton of stuff off of that, but I do off of the areas that have floral or herbaceous crops. We have a lot of uh, Thai immigrant farmers that are in our neighborhood at the Southern one, they tend to be, they tend to have like tons of basil, lots of like Thai chili peppers and things like, but, but flowering and ridiculously aromatic crops. So they play into it as well. Man, you got to get some infusions going on. Oh, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, I like that. I like that confluence of people in place. You're right. Like you're a bunch of people with with several different farms. You've got these varietals and, and you're at the point right now where you're saying like, all right, here's how this grows here. Here's how it grows here. Maybe let's shift the focus to up here for, mm -hmm. you know, the, the best expression of, of this particular varietal. So that, that makes complete sense to me. Um, so... Yeah, I guess so. We've we've had we just finished up the Pili Mai, the Come Hither, and uh, yeah, I just I, I love this. This might be my favorite one so far. It's uh, it's super approachable and just like I just I I get a ton of melon on the finish too. Like it's got this really nice watermelon 
uh, aspect to me, and and I, sure. I really enjoy that. So, so I um, I so love I love this one in a mojito. So like the oh, mint yeah. and the mint and melon thing that happens, it's it's really fantastic. Like this this is a lanai sipper. You get you know mint, lime, soda water, and a you know a ton of pili mai. It's uh it, it works. So yes um, yes. So let's move so, into the last one, which is Mahai Ula, um, a real soft and short lesson on Hawaiian words. Letters in the Hawaiian alphabet perform different sounds depending on what's around them, and emphasis on certain parts of the word are really important. So for anybody who's following along, you'll notice that I put the emphasis on hai, Mahai Ula. It's how you say the word Mahayula is uh, named after the red trevally, which is a red alua, a fish. Um, 30 of the different 91 names that we came across, uh, at least 30, were named after sea creatures. So there, no one's seen a red alua in a very long time, uh, but this is named after it. And apparently the striping pattern on the cane looked like the fish. And I just think it plays into being able to picture Hawaii in 1500 and they're like, they're, they're fishing for these, these, you know, fish in the same, you know, region that maybe they're growing this cane and it has a similar look and they're like, well, this is Ko Mahayula. And then they would have the fish Mahayula as well. And it just plays, there's this idea of uh, Malka to Makai, like from the ocean to the sea, it's, it's, the real name of it is Ahupu A'a. Essentially, it's a it's an area that everyone has what they need to sustain life. Um, and you would think that Hawaiians were incredible fishermen, and, and they were great fishermen. But most of their bounty was actually land based. They were phenomenal farmers. So if you think about like the importance of naming that fish, they were naming that fish after the cane, not vice versa. So like they're they're thinking land first. So it's a really for us we we love being able to share those stories. It's like there's a connection from that goes deeper, and it, and I think it's it's great to share. Mahayula is probably the most polarizing of all the varietals we grow from a flavor standpoint. Huh. This is well this from the from the aroma standpoint. I, I don't really sense anything polarizing on the nose. What am I in for right now? No, it's, I, I don't get it at all. So this is what, what I, the response I get on Mahayula is always, this is my favorite, or I don't like this one at all. We get, those, those are like the two spaces that people play in with this, which I think is crazy because obviously I love it. I think it's remarkable. It's cool. It's, uh, the nose is lighter than the uh, Pili Mai, I think, at least for me. I get almost some like weird. This is gonna be a weird aroma note, but like cauliflower. Uh, oh, interesting. Like it, it's 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 light but sweet, and it but it but it has a little bit of herbaceousness to it. Like mm -hmm. to me, this is like a something 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 white that just got lightly blanched, and now I'm smelling the steam coming off of this the pot or something like that. I got you. Um, but also a little bit fruity. Like there's there's definitely some like the the nose on the Mahai Ula. Uh, is similar to the palate on the Pili Mai in that it's like a little bit more perfumey and, and just like, yeah, like you get, you, you kind of fill, it fills you with something. 
and sure. then when I when I take the palette, it's like it's hard to describe. I mean, can can you give us some of some of your tasting notes, knowing that it's polarizing? Yeah. So I I think the thing that it does is it at the very end of it, it plays in this like French anisette candy, which I think fennel and anisette tend to be slightly polarizing, especially at the at the end of a rum that you don't expect it. So you're not prepared for this, like that ending of it. And it's almost got like this, like aftertaste of eating red hots thing going on as well. Um, and I think that that's where it is, is it's, it's, I, I don't want to say disjointed, but it's, it fools you between the nose and the palate. Like it, it it's playing some tricks where like, wh why aren't there cleaner lines drawn between point A and point B? And it just goes somewhere different. And it's, it's, look, I, I don't know how to describe it perfectly, but that's, that's what I, what I think. Cause you get like, you get tree fruit and you get lots of, like, I even get like the, the banana blossom thing happening in the nose. And then you somehow end up with this like really broad stroke, finnally anisette like thing at the end, <laughs> but that's. Yeah, I, I go out of my way actually to seek spirits that have that kind of unexpected nose to palate relationship. I think it's what makes uh, many, especially carefully distilled products, you know, craft products, really interesting. And um, I get, I, I see the Annie set. I, I definitely wouldn't go further than fennel. This is definitely not going into like the star anise category. Like I could, no. you know, I've I've crunched on a on a French fennel or a fresh fennel seed. It may have been a fresh French fennel seed, uh, but uh, to me, and I get, I get, I get the red hot thing. You get it a little bit in the throat. There's a little bit of chemisthesis going on, um, which is also something. You know, one of one of the things I do want to pull out is that each one of these rums that we've tasted has had a completely different mouthfeel, and there have been a couple of different chemisthesis um, sensations. Um, uh, that, that we've experienced as, as we've gone through this tasting. And, and that's been super interesting to me. And, uh, yeah, to me, like this is super compelling. I, I'm not off put by this at all. Like I, this is, this is going to be the, this is going to be my thinking rum, I think. Yeah, no, no, for sure. But I think that's why it's polarizing because let's be honest, not everybody drinks for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. So like if, if you're more, you know, content, contemplative you're thinking things or if you're if you're just getting getting something done right like you're look this is i don't want to always think about my spirits right i i can't actually say that because i do but i i understand that thought look I, mm -hmm. I i really just want something to drink and that's why like you won't ever hear me poo poo vodka or anything like that because everyone's allowed to have their reasons for consuming and enjoying so i i get it a little bit from a like look, like, don't make me do this. <laughs> I just want it. I just want a rum. Let me drink. Whereas Mahayula, you can't help but be like, well, shit, <laughs> what, what's going on here? You have to think about it. There's no hiding from it. Exactly. If, and if, uh, if you're, if you're not looking for something that complex, then, then just grab your bottle of Pinli Mai and, uh, and go enjoy your day because that's, that's fantastic. Um, well, uh, Kyle, this has been tremendous. I, this is the sort of experience that 
people pay lots and lots of money for. So I'm, I'm very grateful that you've been here to personally walk me through it. Um, yeah. And and I, what I'd love to touch on before we jump into the lightning round is a couple things. One I want to talk about. Yeah, the one thing I want to talk about is a couple things. Uh, we've we've got some other things that you do, right? You have barrel selections, and then you have uh, some some other projects. I've got one of them in the glass in front of me right now. We've got the Cocoleca or Cocolica. And so I'd love to taste through that and then maybe talk about what, what the, what the future is for Kohana rum. Yeah. So let's, let's start with what Cocoleca is. So Cocoleca is the Hawaiian word for chocolate. Make no mistake. Chocolate came with the Spaniards way later. So cacao is relatively new to Hawaii. As we were looking for, other fun things to do. We're, we're a distillery. We like to geek out. We're very rum focused. Everything we do is about cane, but we still wanted to share some other things. So a along our journey with Co, we found out that cacao, the plant that you derive chocolate from, is only grown in Hawaii as far as U.S. states. So we have the only U.S. grown cacao in our state. And we thought, well, why shouldn't we make a completely US-based chocolate liqueur out of locally grown cane, locally grown cacao, and then cacao is super bitter, let's figure out how to sweeten it. And we could have sort of cheated and done the like sugarcane juice or sugarcane syrup or something back. And we're, we're pretty anti adding anything to our rums that's like that, so no sugar add. So we went with a local honey company. So. We work with a, a local apiarist, a local chocolatier, and we just infuse our white rum with cacao and honey. And that's the that's where Coco Leca sits. It, it's a liqueur. Um, we would have loved to call it such. It's 30% ABV, um, but there was a large coconut rum brand that got the law changed so that if you're over 20%, you're a rum, not a liqueur. So we are still technically called a rum, even though for anybody following along, it's a liqueur. Let's be straight. This is like, we, you could call it a flavored rum, sure, but that's not the space it plays in. Um, and it's, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a chocolate experience. It's unlike any other, because it's real cacao and real honey, not no BS. So really fun liqueur. This we can't keep this around. People just go crazy for it. So um, it's, it's a fun product. To answer the other side of the question that you had, which is what are we up to? Where are we going? It all starts with farm. So right now we are growing from 35 harvested acres last year to 85 harvested this year to over 300 harvest next year. And that means a lot. It means increasing our distilling operations. It means increasing our barrel house. It means, and, and so we went through a lot of growth last year as we were focusing on sanitizer and keeping our team employed with no tourists. We built a barrel house that'll fit about a thousand barrels. We put in a new still so that we now have two different stills uh, to help. We added mills on the farm. We add, we're adding harvest. So it's all, it's, it's building from the like cute and romantic craft size to become 
the type of rum brand that we can share with people the world over. I really want to prove that we can do at least that size scalability and still maintain all of our integrity and, and show people that like, you don't have to take shortcuts. Like we're a no shortcuts company. So we want to compete in a global market while still doing things the right way. And that that's when we talk in two more years, which hopefully it'll be more in between then, but in two years when we talk again, and it's like, no, like it worked. Now we're in 40 <laughs> states and, and, and we're still making rum the same way. And I think that that's, yeah. that's a big part of what we want to do is, is grow while maintaining our core. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I mean, the, the, the capital needed to secure all that equipment and, and the facilities is obviously a big deal. And so I'm, you know, I'm sure you've got a lot riding on this. So to anybody who's listening, the best way that you can support is obviously to go and buy rum. Um, yes, we've sir. got bottles here and they, they, they would like to ship them to you. And we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about how best to do the uh, best to secure that in a few mo moments here. But before we jump into lighting around, man, this cocoa Lecca is ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm not like, Chocolate, like I'm fine with chocolate. I enjoy a good dark chocolate. I'll even have a tasting of a couple different dark chocolates and be like, oh, this this single origin, this single origin, cool, right? But I don't go, like I don't crave it. My stepfather, yeah. not my stepfather, my father-in-law um, is like crazy about chocolate. And and he, he'll like, you know, he gets really excited. But for me, it's like I could take it or leave it. But this, it when you just nose this, and this, keep in mind, this glass has been sitting open for an hour now. When you nose the Coco Lecca, you almost get a high. It's like there's this aromatic high that you get that is like, and I, I make chocolate bitters. So like we get, we get these bags full of cacao shells and it's like, imagine just sticking your face in there. That's what it's like sticking your nose in this glass. And then on the, on the palate, you know, the honey is great. Honestly, I think the fact that the honey plays a supporting role here is really nice because I think with honey, there's so much interesting about honey that you could very mm -hmm. easily make it about the honey. But the fact that like when you take this in on the palate, you've got a little bit of that cane character. You've got that honey to kind of blend the chocolate and the rum. And then you've got it goes straight to the backsides of your tongue and you get that almost like painful, but kind of salivary tang response. That's almost a litmus test to know that you're working with super high quality dark chocolate. And it's like, yeah. this is probably one of the truest chocolate experiences I've ever had in the spirits world, because there's so much that can get in the way. And there's so much, there's so many decisions to be made with uh, a word that you mentioned earlier, which is bricks, which is how much sugar content is in something. And even the type of sugar it is plays into your bricks decisions. And I think this is this is a remarkable product in light of that. And it makes complete sense why this doesn't stay on the shelves. Holy cow. My wife is my wife is going to take this and hide it somewhere. No, I hey, look, it's it is delicious. Cocoleca. Super awesome. And I, and I do apologize for not diving into barrels with you today, but I wanted to focus on our, our white rum expressions, which we call Kea, like, like the mountain Mauna Kea, white mountain. It's, it's the Hawaiian word for white. And then treat you to a little kokoleka at the end. Cause you know, it's what's made with our white rum as well. So really fun. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. I'm sure, I'm sure we have a lot to dive into with, with barrel stuff. You, you do have uh, on your on your website, you have some information about the different barrel projects that you have. You have some bottles up for sale there, and uh, so 
if anybody who's listening is a rum fan, but maybe not an unaged rum fan, there's definitely still stuff for you. And if the quality of the spirits in the glass is unaged, is any indication, uh, I'm I'm super excited for for you to uh, check out what the barrel aged options are. And and for sure, if anybody listening does that, feel free to drop us a line podcast at modernbarcart.com. Let us know. Uh, maybe we'll go ahead and even update update our show notes page to to give us your tasting notes on that. So always cool. happy to to keep on interacting with that. But uh, Kyle, anything you want to give us before we jump into the lightning round? No, I just I, I want to make sure everybody knows like when you come to Hawaii, which you you have to because you know it's Hawaii. Um, we we have a lot of craft distilleries here. We would love to show you around. We'd love to walk you through the different canes. We're we're open to public seven days a week, showing this off. So when you're at home, we will ship you a bottle that will be transportive. But when you decide to hop on a plane, come say hi as well. And uh, before long, you'll be seeing us all over the place with any luck. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, All right. Into the lightning round we go. First question, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've more recently fallen in love with? So I adore Negronis. I know the rum guy saying Negronis is is crazy. Um, I'm incredibly particular. I don't like uh, vermouths with too much vanilla. So for my Carpano Antica fans out there, I go in and I'm the guy who's like, do you have a vermouth that's not Carpano? I, I would love something lighter that lets the gin sort of lead the way. But I drink Negronis on the rocks. Uh, I drink, I love sherry. So a good sherry cobbler. And then the quintessential rum cocktail is a properly made daiquiri. So those are, those are my go-tos, but honestly, knee jerk is a Negroni. That's like my, that's my jam. I think that that Trinity that you just listed covers all your bases, especially, especially in the, in the warm weather climate of Hawaii. So, uh, fantastic. Um, next question uh, is there anything product-wise or trend-wise in the spirits and cocktail world that you feel is underrated or underappreciated at this moment in time? Uh, grower producers across the board. Uh, and also, I, I, I think just understanding the provenance of where where things come from. And I think it's it's beginning to be more normalized. And, and I, think, I think that's part of like the farm-to-table movement. But grower producers is, is where it's at for me, um, whether it's mezcal, tequila, uh, any fantastic grape distillates that you might find at smaller cognac houses or Armagnac houses, American brandies. But, but even for folks who aren't growing it but are source producing really, really well, uh, paying attention to their molasses or paying attention to their corn, it's those people, the people who really care about the produce and the plant. Um, but yeah, grower producer is my, my short answer. Sorry. Lightning round grower producer. (laughs) No, good, good. I like that. There's, there's some, the, the bourbon world is about to get rocked by all this heirloom corn that's out there. So I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, light, uh, the widow maker question, I should say, uh, cocktail with anyone past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. Yeah. So I would, I would probably go back in time to probably 1960s in Spain. So right before my mom was born and have, uh, have, have some jamon and wine with my grandpa. That would, be, that would be who I would do it with. It would be like maybe 61 or 62 in Zaragoza, Spain and like see what he was like pre-kids, 
in in the air force you know and and just do that so i would mine would be very personal in that way but yeah that's where i would go i got you so zaragoza spain that's in the south right yep so zaragoza you know military town i actually haven't been ever so uh, that's that's probably part of the selfishness you know mm-hmm. look back i mean this is like yeah this is still i think franco time so it, it, maybe i wouldn't have been allowed to go <laughs> That's fair. I mean, they, from what I hear, they have some beautiful uh, Arabian Muslim architecture there because that was yep. part of where the, the Moorish expansion was in. So definitely uh, a place that should be uh, on the travel list for anybody who's uh, going to try and hit some spots on the Mediterranean. Um, yeah. What is an unusual or maybe controversial view that you hold in the spirits and cocktail world? And I, I don't doubt that you hold one because, you know, you're doing some pretty interesting and, and uh, unique stuff. I, I, so this one's maybe a slightly blasphemous um, in, in terms of like wh- where we sit and everything. I think there's a space for all the decisions you make as long as you provide transparency. So I'm like, drink White Claw, drink agricole single varietal rums, drink weird, you know, mass produced whiskeys or whatever but know what you're drinking and be honest about what it is you're making. Uh, so my, I, it's maybe not controversial in, in that way, but like do, do what you want and drink what you want. Um, and, and let's, let's find a space, but be knowledgeable about it. Is that controversial? Sure. That's not controversial, but you know, now, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because I got a text. It was right before I went up for the holidays. I got a text from my uncle and a text from uh, my stepdad and both of them were like, Hey, what kind of beer do you like? And like in both cases, I was just like the wet kinds, uh, yeah. and, and, which is completely. And then I texted immediately after that. I was like, uh, you know, IPAs reporters, right. So just, yeah. give, just to give them something. And, and, and uh, and yeah, I, I get that impulse because I, I agree. There's the, there's the, I like the transparency trend and, and, uh, for me, it, it doesn't matter so much what I'm drinking because I happen to have a palate that's wide enough to take in, you know, whatever it is on hand. I'm, I'm, if it's, if it's in a can or if it's in a glass in my hand, I'm generally pretty happy with it unless it's obviously flawed. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, it does, it takes it to an actual level of enjoyment if I understand it. And if there's a reason why I'm grabbing for that thing, as opposed to something else. And if it's just on a shelf with a bunch of other commodity things that are, that are, that are, maybe eliding over some of the facts and ingredients, then you can't make a decision based on information. You make a decision based on marketing. And, and I think that might be a little bit what you're talking about. For sure. And, and, you know, as a, as a producer myself, I'm trying to make a bottle that you want to open up with people around the table. But I also understand that the most important thing in that situation is the people around the table. So yes, I want to be included as a bottle of rum, but it's about the humans that you're gathering with. Like I've, I've had phenomenal experiences drinking Coors original next to a fire and by no mistake, sorry, you know, Coors and my, you know, first organic chemistry professor was a Coors chemist. Um, it's not an, it's not an amazing quality beverage. Let's just be real. But guess what? That was a phenomenal experience. So it's let, let the liquid be additive, but it's all about who you're surrounding the table with. Surround yourself with freaking amazing humans. 
For sure, for sure. And if there's if there's one thing that Disney has taught us, it's that Ohana means family, and uh, and so certainly Kohana should should be brought into that conversation. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kyle, why don't you um, wrap us up by telling everyone, first off, how to find your rum and maybe giving us a sense of where you guys are shipping to right now uh, mm -hmm. in terms of direct to consumer. And then, of course, uh, all the social handles and, and digital contact info would be greatly appreciated as well. Yeah, of course. So if you're looking to find us in Hawaii, we are everywhere. You can't go to a grocery store without finding us. On the U.S. mainland, it is difficult to find us, but we are distributed in California. So you can find us at Total Wine and Bitters and Bottles and Barkeeper Silver Lake and some of the cool kid shops. Um, but we do ship. Uh, you have to go and look at the website because it's ever changing. We have to use a few different shippers depending on the state or whoever it is. D.C., like you said, is the Wild West. But, you know, there are some people that can ship to some of the Midwest for us and some people that ship in the South. And so it all gets aggregated through our website, which is really awesome, but you've got to take a look. So, you know, the larger States, we mostly have covered uh, California, New York, Colorado. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's sort of hit or miss everywhere else. I, I, I apologize for the U S having crazy restrictions, but you know, tax man's got to get paid. Yep. And if you're in the Mid-Atlantic and want to ship to me, just expect that there's going to be a one bottle tax in there. You can you can certainly make it happen, but you know we're we're going to talk beforehand. Uh, yeah. So uh, give us a, give us the social handles, Kyle. Oh, it's we keep it really simple. It is all Kohana Rum, K O H A N A R U M. That's our Instagram. That's our Facebook. I believe that's our Twitter. Although we don't tweet a whole lot. Uh, and then Kohana Rum is our website as well. So kohanarum.com. Uh, yeah, you can you can find us all at that simple handle. Well, Kyle, this has been transformative. Uh, it's really uh, opened my eyes to some some really special things that, that you guys are doing. And, and uh, I hope that our listeners, both on the industry side and the home consumer side of the aisle, are, are both similarly compelled to uh, learn more, not just about rum, not just about agricole rum, not just about cane varietals, but uh, but about the different varieties of rum experience that we that we can have if we just kind of knuckle down and, and really focus on learning about things instead of just trying to, uh, to think we already know it all. So uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing this journey with me. And uh, all of the best as you and the Kohana team uh, work on what seems to be a very ambitious expansion in the several years to come. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we are incredibly grateful for being able to share our story. So thanks for allowing us the, the time on your podcast to, to talk story with future fans um, and, and your fans. So a big mahalo to you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's how I was going to finish up. I was going to drop that on you. All right. Well, ah. cheers to you, Kyle. And cheers. mahalo. Mahalo. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. 
The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Hawaiian Agricole Rum, courtesy of Kyle Reutner and Kohana Rum, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.